Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra-tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey there, music nerds. Welcome to the show. This is episode number 117, the second last episode of season five. And this week we are featuring my conversation with my old pal, guitarist, producer, songwriter, and man of many talents, Mr. Craig Northey from Vancouver. I just want to let you in on a few things before we get rolling here that are coming up. First off is I have some new music coming out in 2022, three albums, in fact. And if you feel like getting your mitts on any of that, you can pre-order those now at stevedawson.ca. So check them out if you want. I will also be doing a tour in the spring, and those dates are starting to get announced, mostly in Western Canada right now, so I hope to see you out there. The second thing is there's a contest for kids that we're putting on, and last year, if you listen to the show, you'll know that we got pretty into the whole uh, remote recording scene and got it pretty dialed in and worked on that a ton over the pandemic, and last year we had a contest to get some younger kids involved, and it was a blast, so we're doing it again this year. And so if you listeners know of any kids that are under 20 that write their own songs, they can submit them to us. We're going to pick the top three and record them with a full band and release it for them as a single digitally. And all proceeds, any proceeds, I mean, you know, digital release, come on. It's not going to make a billion dollars, but it might make a few dollars or maybe even like quite a few dollars. I don't know. But all the proceeds are going to go to the Sarah McLaughlin School of Music, which is an excellent organization, and um, of course, there's no strings attached, no entry fees or anything. It's all free and all fun, so if you know anyone, tell them about it. You have until the end of December to get the songs in. It's called the Henhouse Express Junior, and all the details are also at stevedawson.ca. I think just down the front page a little bit, you scroll down, and there's a thing there for the uh, Henhouse Express Junior. And lastly, we're going to be doing this really fun and interesting program called the Henhouse Hang. Well, I think the full title is going to be Steve Dawson's Hen House Hang. It's going to be in um, September of 2022, and it's basically a four-day intensive recording experience here in Nashville at my studio focused on recording roots and Americana music. And we'll be taking over a wicked little boutique hotel just around the corner from me. It's literally around the corner. It's about a 20-second walk. And we will work in my studio every day. We'll take over that hotel at night. And it'll be myself and an engineer that I've made tons of records with over the years, Sheldon Zaharko. And we will be teaching you all kinds of things about recording different instruments and recording bands in a live setting. We'll have an artist come in and a full band of musicians. We'll go over how to uh, record all those instruments and how to work with a band and and uh, how to do the Nashville number system and get cool sounds and experiment and a little bit about mixing as well. And we'll also do a little sightseeing a couple of the mornings, and that should be lots of fun. So we've opened up the bookings. It's limited to only 10 people. So if you're interested, jump on it soon. And you can also get info on that at my website, stevedawson.ca. And uh, right on the front page, there's a link to the Hen House Hang. And I would like to thank the recent financial supporters of the show. Could not do it without you. I appreciate it greatly. And so thanks this week to Stephen Kaplan and John Barnum. 
I, I hope you guys have all been enjoying having these more frequent uh, released episodes. It's been fun to, to kind of cram them in a little bit. Um, the main reason being that I kind of had a backlog and I felt bad about these episodes sitting for quite some time because I did a lot of these in like February, March, the interviews that is, and then they've been sitting here uh, while I released them one one per month. And so I kind of decided to speed that up and try and get them all out before the end of the year. So this, uh, this week we've got Craig Northey, and then I'm not sure exactly when the last episode is going to come out, probably very late December. I won't tell you who that is yet, you'll see. And then um, I've already started work on season six. So as I say, couldn't do this without your support, and I really appreciate if you're able to uh, contribute. Um, even when the episodes are in the middle of being made and not being broadcast, there's still a bunch of expenses involved, and we can always use the support. So thanks again. Okay. Uh, today's guest is a veteran of the Vancouver music scene, my old hometown. I grew up really aware of his band, The Odds, and they also had a really interesting alter ego called Dawn Patrol, and they played this joint downtown called The Roxy. They play there all the time, and it turned into a pretty notorious scene. I was too young to really go, but I would always hear about The Roxy, and um, it was a, yeah, total scene. And they would use that gig to... to basically like make money and get really good because it gave them a, pl a place to play over and over again. And I think they had a rehearsal, like a jam room set up downstairs and maybe even a recording studio at some point. Anyway, they came up as the odds in this great wave of Canadian indie rock and pop that was happening in the 90s. They had a bunch of radio hits, toured all over the place. Crazily, they hooked up with Warren Zevon for a while and backed him up and they just had a hell of a run back then. And they eventually took a hiatus from that, which is when I started to get to know Craig. I did the odd session for him for things, and we did some gigs here and there. And since those early odds days, Craig has become an in-demand sideman to artists like Stephen Page, who was one of the original members of the Bare Naked Ladies, as well as Colin James. And um, he's a co-writer that I know so many people from across Canada and elsewhere who call Craig because they just want to be in a room with him when they're writing songs. And he's just got a real knack for for writing and he's great to be around. And I think that combination is, as as we've talked about before on this show, that's that's the, the killer combo. Uh, he also produces and he's been involved in soundtracks too for Kids in the Hall and some of their comedy and music offshoots, as well as doing music for uh, the hit show Corner Gas. Craig's a great guitar player. He's got a deep knowledge of rock and pop music and he's just one of the best hangs in the biz, which is a huge asset. And Odds continue to play when they can, and they have a brand new album coming out in the summer that we talk about on this show, and it's called Crash the Time Machine, and we'll get a sneak preview from that as well. And you can find Craig on Instagram and Twitter, and Odds have a website at oddsmusic.com, and you can get tour dates and info on the new record there. So go check it all out, and without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Craig Northey. Where where are you at? Are you in are you in your house or are you in your studio? You know, out back the shack out back. You've been here. Yeah. Yeah. Is it changed? It looks different. Oh yeah, yeah. I I think I renovated since you were here. You've been working out of there for man, you had a home studio like before anyone I know did, really. Yeah, I've been in this place for twenty five years, I think close to that. Holy crap. Yeah, I just sit, That's cool. I sit in this chair for I don't know how many how many hours of those uh, years. Well, uh, let's launch in and talk about some of all that stuff that you sit there doing because that's very intriguing. I think you know, like one of the most interesting things 
about um, what you do is how you've managed to kind of um, excel at so many different aspects. There's all the music stuff you do, and then you're a sideman, and then you're a session player, and then you do soundtracks and songwriting, of course, like all kinds of people co-write with you and seem to really enjoy that. So that must be something that you enjoy doing. Do you kind of spread all that stuff out just sort of like as the work dictates, or do you try and do one thing more than the other? Or if you could just be a a road rocker all the time, would you do that? <laughs> well, I think like a lot of us, we, we got into it to be in a band and travel around and, you know, mm. tour all over the world and, and um, see amazing things and have people clap when we're finished. But uh, that's, that's a nice thing. Yeah. The applause, but um, you divert from there. Everything sort of goes from there. And, and I just sort of say yes to what seems fun. And um, that's been my, career planning so far (laughs) just sort of say yes and figure it out and if there's a conflict with one thing or the other it seems to somehow work itself out and I I think you're in the same boat you've diversified immensely since I met you and um and just covered bases where where somebody calls and they're interested I I'm I'm also interested because that it makes it exciting if somebody's interested in doing something with you, whether it's playing the guitar or writing or um, going on the road with them. <laughs> you know, I just, I just kind of do it. So with that off the table this year, the road stuff, because you were road dogging it a bit with Stephen Page, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think the I don't think Odds does like a ton of road work anymore, right? Or do you? It's not the same. No, I mean we yeah. used to be on that um, that make a record. Uh, tour treadmill for many years but after a while as we took a kind of a we took a hiatus shuffled the deck over that hiatus and came back and the world had really changed so yeah we realized well you can do whatever you want you can do this on your own terms and maybe the world doesn't want you to be on that treadmill anymore they don't need as much odds so uh, (laughs) you don't have to keep trying to jam it down their throats the most you're out, we're out with that band is a couple of weeks, the most. Okay. So with in this year where there's been nothing and you've, you haven't been, I don't know how much you were out with Stephen Page. I saw you in Nashville and I know that he seems to be a pretty busy guy and you're always out with him. And before that, you were with Colin James a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, do you miss that part of things? Oh, or, oh yeah, sure. I, I, I think do. I miss people the most, you know. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I didn't get into music to live a solitary existence in this, in this room. Uh, a cave. Yeah. So <laughs> I did get into it for all the trading of licks and the, um, the repartee and the smells of a van. Ah, uh, the smells of a van. Yeah. I mean, I miss that part. And um, musical language is really uh, a human thing. You know, I, I miss that. Yeah. I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, to a certain extent. I don't miss the traveling part of it so much. Everyone says the same thing. Don't miss that part. Yeah. <laughs> I don't miss the hotels or the traveling part. And yeah. just waiting in an airport or getting dicked around. <laughs> when you're on the road with somebody, do you find that when you come back that that everyone just thinks you're away and out on the road with that person forever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can do some clever things like say, hey, uh, I get home on this date, but actually you get home two days before that. Just, just so you can decompress. Yeah. My kids used to call me 
um, when they were younger, I'd be, I had been gone about a week and, um, they'd call me and say, dad, dad, I need a ride. I need a ride from Dan's house. I need to get over to this place. And I go, Hey, um, I'm not actually in town. And they go, I'm in Tulsa. They go, Oh, where are you? And I say (laughs) Tulsa and they go, okay, I'll call mom. And they hang up. (laughs) So nice to, nice to know you're missed. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Um, I've talked to some people who are like side guy, you know, like, um, Fats Kaplan has this issue where he'll go out, like when he went out with Jack White or something, he would be out for two, three months at a time. And then he'd come back to Nashville and everyone just thinks he's gone all the time. Was that ever, cause you're sort of known in a way as like, you know, these days you're Stephen Page's guitar player. And before that, Colin James's, was that something that kind of like was problematic for you career-wise? It, it hasn't been, but then again, going back to my career planning, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't I don't see it as problematic. Perhaps perhaps it sort of breaks momentum. Um, I I most people know to call me and see whether I'm there mm-hmm. or what I can do, and I always have provisos that I don't want to be a flake. So I'll say, hey, I can't I can't do that. I'm I really worry. Yeah. I really worry about that about getting backlogged on projects and overcommitting, which I have done many times. Yeah, yeah. I think we all have, right? I mean, you kind of have to sometimes overbook yourself. Yeah, just to. I think with know. the with the the COVID um, break, it got it gave me a chance to visit some of those things that were sitting in my studio that I'd been waiting to to do, even though none of my actual work had changed. I just wasn't trying right. to do two things at once. I was doing one thing at a time. One of those things is, is a new odds record. Uh, there's a couple of new things. So you've got a, a new strippers union record and a new odds record. Let's talk about the odds record for a sec. Um, so was that something that you've been working on for a year? Like, do you chip away at those or do you just like put aside a few weeks and get them done? Or how, what's your method of rolling for a, say a new odds record? That one was a matter of chipping away because it's so hard. Not all of us live in the same city anymore. Um, to Where does everyone live? Well, three of us are close, but Murray uh, Atkinson lives on the island. So it's not, oh, okay. it's not that far away. But we kind of would uh, book a day or two on either side of, of some dates we were doing. So we'd get them over here to get to the airport. <laughs> and then when we came right. back, we'd say, can you... Can you deliver your flight for a couple of days? And we would track on some of the ideas that I had in the over here. And sometimes two of us would get together, kind of the way we always have. Two or three of us would get together and work on something, and it would be there in its skeleton. And um, and then when so, the other person was around, we'd say, "What do you think of this?" And they'd either say, "Well, I don't like it," or <laughs> "Or yeah, that's cool. I got. What do you got?" So. We, ch- yeah. we chipped away at it, and it was always uh, because of the things you were alluding to earlier, um, being out on the road, doing other stuff, it was always backburnered for us. Yeah, I can imagine. So, um, oh, we can get to that when we get to it, because nobody's clamoring for it or in, in our own minds, or that um, maybe maybe the time away from it will give us some ideas. When did you start this record? Some of the things are years old. Some of them were came at us at the end, just like making any record like that. 
you just go, oh, that gives me an idea for this. Or this was a piece of something we were going to throw away, and then three people won't let you throw it away. (laughs) So you have to go hunker down and work on it. And Stephen Page got involved in being a person who knows the band intimately over the years and really paid attention to the stuff we'd done before and where we were at. And we were um, his band on his last uh, record. Um, He just kind of, I said, well, we don't really need a producer because we will destroy that person. (laughs) We we could use somebody like you uh, with a gentle touch. A spiritual advisor, so to speak. And he came up with some amazing angles on stuff and also wouldn't let go things that we would throw away. What's a, what's an example of something that he kind of um, championed that you might've not seen through? There's a song called um, some somehow in a dream that was, you know, really personal tune. A lot of the album is a little more that way than, than, than obscure, <laughs> obscuring your emotions. And, and I just thought, I don't have it. I don't have it in me to, to do this. And we got a lot of songs. So, you know, let's just let that one go. And yeah. he said, no, uh, you're either doing it or I'm doing it on my next record. And I went, oh, when somebody says that, you know, you can, you can up your game. And he was right. As far as the bulk of the material goes, like, are you the main, I'd imagine you're the main writer, but are you the only writer or do you and Doug? sit around and throw ideas around or how does that, how does the writing work currently for odds? I would say I'm the lyricist and, uh, and that, um, I suppose, I don't know. It's, we are a complete democracy in terms of writing music and everyone is in on it. And when I write something, I might write, like I said, the skeleton and bring it because then it, people feed on it and, or add to it. And, um, then it becomes theirs and it becomes something I wasn't expecting. And that's, that's what I think being in a band I've always thought was sometimes it's, right. it's different for everybody else, but that's how it's always been for us. What is your approach with lyrics? Like I, the thing that I love about your writing is that there's always like a sense of humor is always present in a way, but they're not comedy songs, but they're definitely, like your sense of humor comes through in them and always has like going back to early odd stuff, which we can also talk about, but um, how do you approach lyric writing? Like, do you have a stockpile of stuff that's books and books thick, or do you just write as the song dictates to you? I have a stockpile of stuff, but uh, I I don't often, it stays in the stockpile for the most part. I, (laughs) It's there. And out of desperation, I might grab eight words or, you know, I use it as a, an oracle sometimes just to to start an idea. But I find that most of the stuff comes in the time that I'm working on it and, um, and uh, being painted in a corner and sitting in this chair, staring at a wall and then something might happen or got to take a break, go for a run or get the dog out into the woods and, something happens in your change of chemistry, but the stockpile basically stays, stays a stockpile. <laughs> Off in the corner somewhere. Yeah. But it's there. <laughs> I can go to it. What is the um, influence of 
say, humor or comedy in music? Like, I, I would imagine people like Warren Zevon, Nick, Nick Lowe, maybe, might kind of be influences in that way. Um, I mean, you're, you can the hammer, pass. Where's the hammer and the nail? You just, you just, you just hit it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Who else were you listening to that kind of had that? Because it's always been a part of your music. Yeah, I, I think... I think those two were big. Um, I mean, wow! I really nailed it. You did, yeah. Those two, okay. those two were huge for me, and and I think ending up. I don't know if you know, but we ended up being Warren Zevon's band for a while. You know. Yeah, I gotta. We gotta talk about that. And um, that was just sort of one of those harmonic convergences that I don't think he was expecting, <laughs> but or either were we. But Nick Lowe, for sure, uh, Watershed, for me, it is as snarky as he was at the time back then, long time ago, and, and a following to the elegance of what, what he can do now. Um, I just, I don't know exactly why the humor, perhaps, is because um, it's a complex, it, it, it's a complex thing, humor. It means something. Uh, on a couple levels. So um, maybe it was easier than thinking it out and making it have a lot of levels. I, I don't know. I don't know why the humor, maybe to deflect, maybe to deflect and push away uh, what your people from you. <laughs> so they don't figure right. out, so they don't figure out how sad you actually are. <laughs> You've worked a lot with, with people in the comedy world too. I mean, I, that must have a big impact on you. You guys have been working and friends with the kids in the hall and, and Brent Budd and all that. So you've, you've done all kinds of work with those people. Does that directly influence your writing, do you think? I think that in that case, when you're scoring something or you're helping somebody write a song, like, for instance, maybe I produced a Bruce McCullough record and it, it's songs. And um, when you're doing that, you're you're never making jokey music. You're not writing right. a, when you're scoring a, a comedy scene, you're writing it for what it is for, for a straight. If it's emotional, you play it. If you're, so it's not as if I don't think anything I do um, for myself is informed by it in a way, because I'm always see, same with the music that I'm making. I'm not doing anything jokey with the music. That's what I dig about it. I mean, I don't really like when music gets really jokey, but but your music has always had that side going on, but it's never never comes across like comedy songs or anything like that. Yeah. But they're witty and funny and and the lyrics are are clever. I I'm glad you notice. I think that a lot of people, some people listen to it without ever really knowing. I know a lot of musicians even in my own band sometimes 20 years later, they'll say, I just heard that lyric that what you're saying, that's, <laughs> you were saying that? <laughs> you got away with that right under my nose? I go, well, all you had to do was listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about a song like Fall Guy, because that, that song is crazy. There's so many parts. It's like a crazy symphony of rock. It starts with like a, almost like a Memphis kind of thing, and then you know, I was listening, I've only had a chance to listen to the record once, but that one like really caught my ear and I was amazed to find that I was listening to the same song by the time it sort of came back to the beginning. How do you put a song like that together when you guys are kind of separate and not necessarily like writing that much as a group? 
Well, it it was um it was too it was that story of uh, it was like a prog rock thing. It was like yes with a razor blade and a two inch tape, <laughs> because, <laughs> because it was uh, two songs, and then I realized, hey, I the story and the songs and the subtext of the songs the the way the person is feeling is the same story, but an extension, one is an extension of the other. So I started fooling around with how to put them together and, and see, because I, I, I really went, these are both good songs, but I, I don't, I can't see putting the two on a record because I am one of the people who listens to lyrics. <laughs> I thought, yeah. you know, this is really the same story, but at different angle on the story different time frame. So um, I just started rewriting lyrics and um, moving things around in here because now machines are magic for that. They sure are. And tempos, trying to sew the thing together, find some cadences and transitions that would meld it to get these pieces together. And in the end, uh, my, my, my uh, jury of peers in my band is quite astute and unforgiving. They, they said, hey, that works. <laughs> <laughs> what is the process for recording an odds record? Like, do you do it all in your place? This was all here, yeah. All, okay. Except for when COVID came, everybody was in their own homes. So a lot of bass tracks, um, backing vocals, um, guitar tracks were done elsewhere. And, okay. and I fished around for other people to sing on some things. And um, there, are, there are a few guests on the record that, that I grabbed in their places. Did Pat do his drums at his place or something? No, they were all done here in real time with all of us playing. Okay, so you guys actually set up in there and rock out as a band yeah, this is, at some point. This is all, yes, all the, all the basic tracks, um, uh, quite a few of them are just Pat and I where we were saying, well, what about this kind of a form? Let's play this like it's a song. We don't know what it is. And uh, the two of us would play, and those are the, that's the bed track. It's Pat and I, and then adding and subtracting from there. Give me a couple secrets of recording a rock band that sounds wicked and sounds like a big live rock band, but in a tiny space. Because by the time you get four people in there with amps and whatnot, it must be quite a racket. Or are you not using amps? Uh, no, we're using amps, but I had a couple ISO cabinets. So okay. originally, that's how we did it. They they sit outside the room. And I don't know, I know I, I, your, your show is great because I can listen to it and people will actually talk about things that my wife would be snoring. Uh, <laughs> so I could say what an ISO cabinet is and that there's a comb. Totally. There's a comb filtering effect and that you have to sort of compensate with EQ sometimes. They don't yeah. sound exactly the same or the reamp is also very valuable. So we okay. chuck down a DI track with it and reamp and I'd have fun reamp day with all the amps set up and a bunch of different mics moving them around. So that's how we used to do it. And now there's a few line level cheating amps that we use. Yeah. Like the like a camper or yeah. something. Yeah, sitting right there, you can see it. Oh yeah, I see it. Yeah, like a camper. Just like a camper. Just like a camper, the one that's right there. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you bring an engineer in, or are you running Pro Tools or whatever you use while you're tracking? This one was engineered by me on the tracking, and um, 
but a lot of times Paul Forgs comes over, who okay. might know him from anything from Slayer to <laughs> whatever, but he's a, a Vancouver engineer, brilliant guy who uh, has worked on Stephen Page's stuff too, Bare Naked Ladies, um, and started working with us on our cheerleader album. And okay. Actually tours with us and with Stephen Page too. Oh, wow. Okay. So you see a lot of that guy. I, I do a lot. And he's, a, he's a, responsible for a lot of building the studio. He's yeah. A brilliant guy. Uh, but he mixed this record because I... Oh, okay. So, so you I didn't, you need to kind of step away at some point and get somebody else involved? I thought so. I thought at that point, just so that I could accept things, um, uh-huh. it'd be better for, for us to hand it all to Paul. And so when you do that, when you hand a record over to somebody else to mix, like as a very capable engineer yourself, do you do you hand over like everything kind of roughed out as far as like what you want for effects and for sounds and stuff? Or do you kind of leave a bit of a blank slate in that regard for him to be creative and weird with it? I sort of treat it like that's a member of the band in that case. In that case. Yeah. And, and that same theory applies that you, you have a skeleton. I, my rough mix is sort of faders up what I hand him. And uh, then if I make any instructions, it makes it impossible for something unique to happen in some way. So <laughs> better to just be scared. So sometimes you get it back and you go, oh my, what the hell happened? And then, <laughs> then I say, okay, calm down. Wait, wait a day. Wait an entire day. Then listen to it again. That's very wise. That's actually a huge, I wish everyone could live by that philosophy because there's so much knee-jerk reaction out there to mixes in particular, I find. Well, the 24-hour rule came from having kids in sports, you know. (laughs) You just want to go tell the ref that that was the wrong call right away. (laughs) (laughs) Or tell the coach, you know, that was a bad idea. But you just, if you wait 24 hours, you go, what the hell? As far as like when I mix stuff, there's a lot of like I I get so many, you know, comments that are like in real time or like as they're hearing it for the first time. And it's like, you you know, I don't want to say, hey, I think you might be wrong, but, Mm -hmm. you know, just sit with it. Sit with it for a few hours. Listen to it. You're a veteran of the blob, you know, the combined sounds and the bleed creating something that's special that you can't get by by recording in that full Steely Dan way, you know, separating everything. And right. and it's amazing to me that I, I can hand this to Paul, but I don't know if I could hand it to everybody. Because like you said, recording a band like this in a small space, that's, you have to embrace it. We have to have get togethers and talks about how we have to embrace it. <laughs> otherwise, pep talks. Otherwise we're going to be sample replacing and all that kind of stuff. And it's not that we don't do that every once in a while to repair a performance that we love, that we didn't execute technically uh, with the machines perfectly. But mm-hmm. um, you have to really embrace the sound of the place you're in and totally. the feeling that's in it. And I think with your recordings, it must be hard to hand over to somebody because you know what that room does to the to the recording and you want to give that mix need about how it went down so that they can tell well, why is that hi-hat washing around like that what's it doing well it's because it's right beside the wall and then you know that kind of stuff but yeah. paul already knows 
he knows what's in here. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I started mixing records, because I, I would hand over something and spend so much time kind of explaining my theory of why I wanted something a certain way or why that wasn't actually a mistake or whatever. I, I ended up just spending so much time like doing that or commenting on revisions that I wanted as the producer that in the end, I was just like, man, I, and actually not to drop names, but Bruce Colburn, when I was working on a thing with him, he said, well, why don't you just mix it yourself? And he was the first person that ever said to me like, hey, why don't you do it yourself? And th- and so ever, ever since then, I've mixed almost everything I've done. And so I kind of bypassed that issue of of having to revise and all that stuff. That was that was Jim Rondinelli for me who who freed me from the idea that I was not an engineer. Right. I said one day I said, "Well, I I rather you do it cuz you're an engineer." And he said, "Oh, have you ever recorded um drums?" I go, "Yeah. Have you recorded a full band before?" I go, "Yeah, yeah, for sure." And he goes, "Have you mixed anything?" "Yeah." Okay. And then he paused. <laughs> he said, "You're an engineer. It's, it's how you it's how you describe your schooling or or how you came about and how you got there. That's different for people, but just don't think about it anymore." Are you like me in the sense that, like, we've never talked about this, so I don't know, but like everything that I know about engineering and and mixing, which I've worked on a lot and I've been doing it for a long time now, but everything that I learned, I basically learned it at you know on on the gig, like while I was working with somebody else who was mixing and I was watching them closely. Is that how you learned? Or did you ever like go to school or like take a dedicated class for anything? Or did you just learn it as you needed it? I, I went to university in the early eighties and uh, I looked, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, uh, except I thought I'm not a good enough musician. So maybe I could help people with records. <laughs> I'll never, ever be a good enough musician, but I think I could help people make records because I I love music and listening to music, and I think I know about the structure of it a little bit. So I'll go do the easy thing, producing. <laughs> really? No. Well, that, so that was like an early thought. It was, er- it was an early thought. So I took a, a commu- communications degree at Simon Fraser University because they had a recording studio. And uh, they had uh-huh. courses in um, music concrete and, and uh, electroacoustic music. So you could get studio time. And back then, people didn't have access to studios. It wasn't like now where Junior gets his studio in his stocking for Christmas. Um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was like you had to have thousands of dollars. And, and in, the ba- in the bands I was in, I had to, we had to go out and, do bottle drives and come up with the money to, to get somebody else to take full control of our music and operate the stuff. So uh, I used my the idea that I was going to university and my parents' blessing <laughs> to, uh, to use the studio up there. And I learned a lot about recording and tape and stuff and synthesizers. And, um, and I found out while I was doing it that the fine arts studio had their studio too with some other cool stuff in it. So I took those courses, but um, it was all under the guise of getting my hands on stuff that I probably couldn't touch, but it wasn't really a recording studio in the conventional sense. And then um, when we formed Odds in, in the late 80s, Stephen Drake was really dead set on 
getting his hands on everything and and us doing it we started with some great people helping us out recording but we realized we really wanted to put our our full imprint on what we were doing and i learned a lot from him too he was he was seems like a bit of a mad genius probably from a young age right as far as like the technical side goes oh yeah he was always into it and his parents were were musicians his dad was the leader of andy williams good time singers and really yeah and he had a deal with capital and steven used to sort of be a studio rat hanging around with his dad and and his mother and and so he was a real um he pushed us all to get involved and i learned a ton from him too tell me like just back up a little bit did you grow up in vancouver yeah i grew up i, I lived in port moody bc Oh, nice. And did you play, like, when did you start getting into playing in bands and stuff? Did you ever, did you have bands as, as a kid and stuff? Or was that later on for you? About, about grade five. I, <laughs> That's pretty early. I think, well, my mother, my mother's a violinist and, uh, and a violist. And she, uh, she was my inspiration, really. And, um, like classic, classical, was she in the symphony or something? Yeah, so I started on violin at a very young age, and I was in the Vancouver Youth Orchestra, which she was in, and I was following that kind of path until I was, uh, and but in about grade grade five or so, uh, my friend got a box teardrop of his brother's, and uh, everything changed in my mind, and, and my first Beatles record before that, and I started to morph into something else on the side. And by the time I was 16, I had stopped the violin and was full on ear, ear training, learning stuff myself. On the guitar mostly? Yeah, guitar. So did you buy yourself a nice little... Oh, I had some doozies of guitars early on. I bought, did you? I bought from that same guy this sort of uh, Tysco Strat looking thing with... Someone had taken the neck off and put it back on and lost all the bolts. So they stuck four <laughs> bolts in that were sticking out about an inch from the back of the neck. And, it, and the, I didn't know the action wasn't supposed to be half an inch off the neck. I mean, it would be perfect for you with a slide. But um, so, so learning was quite daunting at the, at the beginning. And painful. Painful. I went, wow, these rockers are paying for it every day. Did you have a teacher or were you literally learning by ear from the beginning? I I thought, you know, Muddy Waters doesn't need music, doesn't need this sheet in front of them. I'm going to do this myself. And it was picking up the needle and putting it down on the record and learning stuff that way off Beatles records or... What, what else, like what were the other big ones? Um, you mentioned Muddy Waters. Were you checking out blues stuff at that point? Well, yeah, I think everyone of my era was was following the trail, you know, you'd, you'd get a Stones record and then you'd, you'd figure out what they were listening to by the covers they did and, and uh, follow that trail. And, you know, Arthur Alexander through the Beatles. And, you know, by the time I was, um, you know, I went through my prog phase and then I sort of followed music. The, the punk thing happened, you know, we talked about Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe, all that stuff happened to me. Um, after the yes and the rush and, uh, and, um, stranglers and sex pistols and clash and, and I, which 
we've talked about before. You know, you just evolve and you just follow it. And all the, the things that those people were listening to and they talk about, you go and listen to. What did your, what did your mom think of all that stuff? <laughs> they were quietly okay with it. They wanted me to have something to fall back on. So, yeah. so the university ruse was pretty good. <laughs> I knew what I was going to do. She said, don't become a musician because you'll end up feeling like it's a trade and I want you to really enjoy it. And I think because for her, the politics of being a symphonic musician is pretty tough. And she went through that and she just loved music. That's really good advice, even if you didn't take it. Yeah, I didn't take it because I didn't believe her. <laughs> I say that to people all the time, like that are, you know, they're like, oh, I wish I could do that for a living. I'm just like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if you really do. The living part of the for a living part of it is really stupid. But the, <laughs> but we've you find ways to uh, make sure you, you get away with the trick that you're you're working. Yeah. So did you have bands pre odds? Yep. Yeah. Quite a few. Uh, um, you would know some of the people around here, but I, growing up in Port Moody, there, everybody had a, a band, garage band, and and you occasionally get a gig out there. And um, so this is like early '80s, kind of when you started playing, or yeah, '79, '80. I I started getting the first gigs. Whether it was a hall gig that you made up yourself, or um, you you've mixed up the rockabilly covers with your with your music and tried to fool people and got fired on a Wednesday night in Pinocchio, Alberta, that kind of stuff. I did all that stuff. <laughs> uh, and so at what point, like, did you meet Doug as a youngster too, or did that all sort of happen later? I met Paul Brennan, who some would know. I mean, I know where people from all over are listening to these podcasts, but a great drummer in town, but he was about 17 and he used to sneak into our shows in the band that I was in. And uh, he was a friend of Dave McAnulty, the drummer that I grew up with, who played in all my early bands with me. And um, I just thought he was amazing. I thought he's just as weird as we are. Um, he could, I could do something with him one day. I don't know what it is. Just a friend. And so I met him coming to our shows and I met uh, Doug and Steven in this Battle of the Bands kind of contest called Spotlight 86. Um, oh, was, I kind of remember that. Like, I, I was just a little urchin, but I kind of remember Spotlight 86. Yeah, it was more of a, a festival, and it ended up not being what it, it was touted to be. It was Universal Records just sort of poaching musicians and... Uh, uh, that old guy. Making you sign something that meant you couldn't do something for someone else. And uh, so uh, I, Doug was playing with somebody. And what happened was it was just all these young musicians hanging out at the town pump every night for for month a month or so and um, going to see each other play. And it was really a really vast uh, mixture of styles and so you got to meet all these people and uh, mm -hmm. be inspired by them. And, and so that's where I met those guys. And Steven's band won, or were second, I think. And then he had another band called The Nerve Tubes with, um, Nerve with tubes. Bob Muckle and uh, Dave Osborne, a trio that was really great. Um, 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And Bob's band won the thing. So there was there's all these people and nobody cared <laughs> right. who won. And we came like sixth or something. So we were still on the album. Uh, the band I was nice. <laughs> Uh, and so at what point does the odds become a thing? Like, where did you guys all decide to have a band together? Those guys formed, a, you know, the Doug and um, Paul and Steven were getting together and writing and, and trying to start a band and they wanted one more person. And I had left the band I was in and I thought, ah, bands are stupid. I don't ever <laughs> want to be in a fucking band. It's yeah. just, I'm just going to sit in my room <laughs> like this and do it myself. And, uh, and then Paul said, Hey, you should come over and play with us. And I said, Nope, not going over. It. So it really? It yeah. It took him a couple of weeks. And I finally said, Oh, okay, I'll go over there. And within 10 minutes, we'd written a song and I went, Oh, okay. This is what was it? I don't even remember now, yeah. but, um, we, I realized, Oh, this functions, this functions a little different than the other bands I've been in. And, these guys are way better than me in all aspects and they're professional musicians. Cause I never saw myself as one. And those guys, that's all they did. They just played music and somebody paid them and they actually divided up the money. Whereas I was still saying, well, we're all keeping the money in the pot to pay for the Randall PA system that we have, or, you know, we, yeah. nobody gets paid. And uh, so it was really, uh, they trained me. Are you guys all around the same age? You must more or less, right? Yeah, Stevens was older. Is it still? He was he's still okay. older, and um, <laughs> uh, Doug and I are the same age. Pat, Pat yeah. now Pat joined a few years later. Uh, we're all the same age. Tell me a little bit about the Vancouver live music scene. So this is eighty seven, eighty eight that you guys started. Eighty seven was our first gig in November of eighty seven. Yeah, as as the odds. Yeah. So. Um, 86th Street Music Hall, Town Pump. Like, what were the what were the main ones for you guys at that point? Savoy Railway, Town Pump. I don't know everything. We we'd play anywhere. <laughs> and did you play a lot? Like, were you guys playing several times a week around Vancouver, or what was the scoop with that? That was sort of the reason that we invented a moonlighting gig, or it was sort of Stephen's. Um, Stephen had already invented that idea before we started Odds called the Dawn Patrol, which was a, a band that he and uh, some guys did at for Expo 86. Where Oh, that's what that was for. Okay. They had a menu and they'd put it on your, on your table and it would have all the songs with numbers beside them and people would scream out the numbers. 
And uh, so you just switch gears and, you know, it was pretty cool. And so uh, a club was opening on the Granville Strip, which at that point was a, it wasn't the Granville Strip at all. It had a few dive bars on it and, um, and all notorious dive bars where you could get stabbed. <laughs> and uh, sounds like, sounds like now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the uh, person was, the the renewal the the idea of gentrification or turning it into the Granville Strip had started where they were going to close off traffic and so forth. So, oh, it was still a, like you could drive on the road at that point. Yeah, and so um, they the owner the guy who had bought the the venue as it was called it was used to be Jack's Hanging Tree and a bunch of things before that. We were playing the venue as odds. Or, you know, it was an alternative club, as they used to call it. And um, he came up to us and said uh, to Stephen, I know you did this thing at Expo. Would you guys consider doing that in this place? I'm going to open it in a, in a couple weeks and change the name and change it into this thing. So uh, they talked me into it. I, I, I went, I'm not playing covers. I don't want to do that. And uh, they talked me into it. And we established a moonlighting thing where we had wigs and glasses on and did this kind of faux British invasion band so that we could have jobs and play together four nights, four, four sets a night, sometimes multiple days a week and have a band space and everything. And it became a kind of a, a place where we were in the daytime, we were recording downstairs our own music at night, we'd be playing this gig and it turned into a sort of a college hang out we were this is this is this is the roxy by the way yeah yeah, the roxy and uh, this people started lining up to see it because we didn't give a fuck we didn't (laughs) and so we we were nasty comedy uh, was there and so scenes would happen and crazy stuff in the club because we were weren't taking it very seriously but we took the music seriously and played it uh, other than changing the lyrics uh, at will, uh, we played it pretty close. So mostly sort of British invasion stuff. And man, that is such a great way to get good. Like, so, so you guys didn't have to tour. You were making probably pretty good bread in that club, right? Like, and and just being there several nights a week. I, yeah, it was born out of that earlier question about how often were we playing locally. We found there was no way to become that kind of a band because there weren't enough gigs to play that often with your own music. You kind of burnt people out. Yeah. So um, we did that and we would take the money and invest it in our own music and started to travel south eventually to Los Angeles uh, through a couple connections and lines that had been dropped and people had heard our demos, etc., and um, started having a house gig there <laughs> and uh, as ourselves, you know, just going to play these showcases and things. <clears throat> Where would you play in LA? Uh, Coconut Teaser is now gone and Club Lingerie and places. Those are the two that we played the most. Okay. How long did the Dawn Patrol thing, like I remember that when I was, I, I, I was kind of too young to go or anything. I may have seen you once, but that place was bananas. Like, by the, I would imagine by the end of that run, it was pretty crazy in there. What was the scene like for you guys? Was it like a big party scene every night? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that we were 
I suppose we were medicating ourselves uh, to sort of get through the repetition some some nights, but uh, it was it was crazy. It it morphed into this um, bacchanalia, you know, in a way. It eventually became a meat market. You know, people right. coming in from out of town and. It developed a reputation where you could find people there if you wanted to find people. But uh, um, it did start this Granville Strip in a way because that brought people in and money in and the owners started to buy other properties on the block and open other places, restaurants, clubs. And then at what point did you guys have to just cut it off? Like, And was that hard? Because having a a set income is actually a huge advantage for a young band like that. Like that's pretty rare to have that money coming in. Did you, was that hard to just walk away from eventually? Uh, no, not, <clears throat> not at the point <laughs> after doing a, a gig like that for, for that long <laughs> yeah. few years, you are really ready. <laughs> to, okay. But, but we did wean ourselves. We would come back at Christmas time to do a food bank drive and we'd, play for a week and that kind of stuff. And so we kept our toe in it for a little. It felt to, to me like as an, as an observer of somebody sort of looking at the music scene as I was growing up, that you guys did that for years and years and years. But was it not that? Was it just a shorter period of time? It was 87 to almost 90, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe, nine, maybe into 91 because our first album came out uh, in 91. So you guys eventually signed, like, that wasn't done totally independently, was it, that first record? No, we did two cassette-only releases before our first actual, you know, major label or independent major yeah. label album. And then uh, when that... So Neapolitan was the first record, though. Yeah, and that, right. that was done for Zoo Records, which was an offshoot of BMG at the time. That seems pretty serious. Like, was that was that a big deal you guys signed? I, don't, I have no idea what the context of, like, I don't even really know what Zoo is anymore, but was that like a big deal to sign? It was for us. I mean, that was that was the thing back then, getting a record deal. I mean, yeah. it's of no consequence now, but <laughs> um, it was. But that was, was it like living the dream in a way? Did you make a bit of dough and like have enough money to make a... A proper record and stuff? Oh, yeah. Well, we signed a publishing deal. Everything gets signed away. <laughs> but uh, we signed a publishing deal with Virgin before that. And uh, that helped us concentrate on making a record and touring and gave us did, some. Did you, have a, did you have a manager to help with all that stuff? Or did you guys figure that out yourself? We did, yeah. Chris Blake. Oh, okay. Chris Blake. And he, he managed Toad the Wet Sprocket and ourselves and... Teddy Thompson for a while in the old 97s. and um, Oh, cool. Was, where was he? He was in, uh, in Los Angeles. So that was through, through playing there. You got to sign with him or whatever? Yeah. One, one day, uh, uh, ASCAP would put on our showcases, and there was a, guy, a kid there named Tom DeSavia who, who we just made friends with who liked us. And so we would stay on his floor in Silver Lake, uh, like in sleeping bags when we go down there. And um, he, he was really instrumental. And one day he said, I know two people who would really dig you guys. And, and he invited them over to his place. <clears throat> and one was Bud Scapa, who is a, <clears throat> a noted rock writer, if you look him up, and um, an A&R guy who in the 70s had signed the tubes and 
yeah. and New York Dolls he worked with. And wow, uh, he didn't sign the New York Dolls, but he worked with them. And uh, he he uh, what he got invited over, and and Chris Blake, who ended up managing us, got invited over, and they ended up Bud ended up helping us get signed to um, Zoo. Uh, we were signed by George Daly, but he Bud worked at the label by then, and Chris became our manager. So it all happened in one night. Wow! It, the rest took I, it took us another year or so of hard work to get people interested enough to have faith and and give us money. But um, how formed were the songs for the first record at that point? And and also like you get you guys self-produced that record, which is interesting. You would think a label at that point might have kind of assigned you a producer or something, but you guys managed to skirt around that. What was that all about? I think that was the really cool part when I thinking about it is why did they let us? But I think George knew that that was going to keep it interesting and there was something about it that they couldn't quantify. We didn't have any image or any of the things that lined up with the templates at the time. So I think he thought that would be great. And then um, they said, you can get anyone you want to mix it. You know, you can have somebody. Come in. Oh. And uh, we, we chose Susan Rogers, who we were big fans of. And Who is she? Susan Rogers um, was Prince's se- uh, second oh, right. in command uh, for some of the big records, uh, Sign of the Times, Love Sexy, uh, Around the World in a Day, Some of Purple Rain. And uh, she she also worked with David Byrne a bunch and um, Michael Penn, um, all kinds of cool things that we liked. So uh, our manager, Chris, uh, had worked for Cavolo Ruffalo Farnoli, the, the Prince's management company, and had had helped co-manage the three o'clock and all kinds of things, the family and stuff in, in on Prince's uh, label. And he knew Susan. So that was easy. Okay. And she turned out to be amazing. And we used, we got her involved in our, our third album as well. How did you guys know how to make a record? <laughs> we, we had been spending all that money from the house gig to constantly be recording. And we, we Okay. There was a place in North Van called Crosstown, North Vancouver, a guy named Al Roger who who would allow us to do with him whatever we wanted. So we would take X amount of money and say, here it is. We're going to start now and we're going to leave this place with a, a recorded master. And you go, okay, great. And we'd stay up for 14 hours and then we'd leave in the morning kind of thing. Right. So... Uh, some of those recordings ended up on the first album and the second album. Was it smooth sailing through those first couple records? Like, did you guys all get along well and like have a unified vision of how you wanted the music to sound? Oh, that's a tough one. No. <laughs> okay. It's always, uh, I think making records is hard. Uh, I think it, if you really care about what it is and none of us really know where it's going, like my career philosophy you just you just go, let's go and find out. And then people get attached to things and you have to break them from their ego um, to get to a place where you all agree that it's better or uh, or that it's grooving. Like we were really right. groove sticklers. 
people talk about writing songs or having good vocals or whatever, but we were really groove sticklers. So in what way, like what were you, what were you trying to achieve in that regard? Nothing, just a groove, a pocket, you know, we really wanted to, to have this feel, um, things we were listening to, I suppose, but, um, we weren't always easy on each other for sure. So how did you not end up wanting to work with a producer? Like how did that happen that you guys just kept producing? I think you self-produced what the first three or four or something uh the second record jim rondinelli was producer um oh okay so, so yeah so that only prob- lasted one record they probably lost so much money, money that they we think really? it might be an idea that you try try <laughs> and uh so jim was great um still putting him in that position was probably bad for his health because we were so um were you guys like creatively just like at loggerheads like you and Steven or, or no, was there? No, 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 not at all. We were okay. inspired by each other. I don't think mm-hmm. we were at loggerheads, but we, um, I think after a while you kind of, we kind of did know what we want. We didn't want what everyone else wanted or what everyone else had. We didn't think we were in a really insular bunch. So we really could destroy someone who was trying to collaborate with us. <laughs> <laughs> At some point after the first, I don't know if it's after the first or the second record, you hooked up with Warren Zevon, which you mentioned. How does how did that happen? And then you guys went on to be his band for a tour, and you played on his record, and that's awesome. Um, was that just like a fluky chance thing, or was it set up through somebody, or how did that happen? Um, it was, I guess, it was in our case, in our estimation, it was fluky, but. Um, it was our first record and we were out on the road touring it. And um, our agent, Steve Ferguson, was also Warren's booking agent. And okay. Warren had said that he wanted to, he had recorded an album called Mr. Bad Example. And he wanted to take a band out, which he had done before in the past, that was a band. And um, and be his band and be open the shows and have the music complement what he did. And so he asked Steve uh, what he knew and Steve gave him a stack of CDs and uh, Warren listened through and said, I like this one. Who are these guys? So we got a call. We were on the road in the States and uh, saying, Hey, when you're done in a week, would you like to tour with Warren Zevon and be his band? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, we, he'll meet you in Vancouver. And so in the basement of that club, the Roxy, we, he showed up Crazy. one day and we just, he sat down and we rented a piano and, and another had some more guitars and he just walked in the room and we started practicing and for a few days. Did it go great? Like, was it easy and fall into place or was it crazy and weird and hard or what was the, what was the scene? It was it was it was neither. It was easy, yeah, in a way, because Warren was uh, said we just sort of the first day after the ice was broken and we had some laughs and and I said, so what do you want us to do? Do you want us to note for note these rec- the record and everything? And he said, listen to the record. You know what's important. Play those things, and the rest is yours. And so we went. <laughs> That's awesome. Really. 
Okay, cool. And I, I was a huge fan. So I, I had had his records in high school and stuff. And I knew that this riff had to be played. And the, right. this structure was it. And this is the place where we could break open the songs. And then, as you know, you get out on the road and the songs open up, you know, mm-hmm. start to do it. He said, <laughs> the funniest anecdote, though, was we're, we're getting to the last day and we hadn't played Werewolves of London at all. He was just not doing and it. And I said, so, um, elephant in the room, you, you want to run over that one just so we know? He goes, no, you guys have the record. That's fine. Okay, Chuck Berry, this situation here. And uh, <laughs> the first gig was at the Bearsville Theater in Woodstock, which I, I know you've probably played. And yeah. everyone was there, press-like, and it was a live recording, too. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And we, I'm going we haven't even played that song and we know it's going to be a capper somewhere. I don't know where he's going to put it in the set. So this, I, I can, you can get, find the recording online, but that's the first time we ever played it. Oh my God. That's crazy. So, so it was always like a finite thing. It was just like, he wanted a band for a tour. You guys were that band and it, the tour happened. And then that was the end of it. Well, you never know. I don't think anybody really knows. Um, we remained friends the rest of the time, and he came and played on our next record in New York. Right, yeah. Amazing, and and we always kept in touch, and he's a beautiful guy. Um, he, you know, the stories about him, there's lots of books now and stuff. They're all true, so. <laughs> but he was, he was an amazing mentor for, for me especially. Did you have some really great experiences with him out on the road? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, we got, we'd never been on a bus. We'd never done any of the rock exciting. things. We'd been in a van for months. We'd, we'd destroyed a motorhome. You know, we'd done, we'd, we'd been uh, just never in a situation like that. But uh, so we learned, he, he was always good at the rock and roll ropes for us. And we thought he was the oldest guy in the world. And I'm about, oh my God. I'm probably 19 years older than he was at the time. He was in his 40s. Yeah, that would seem ancient back then, right? Yeah. He was a real vet. Well, that's cool. So, yeah, he plays. He played on your record, and you had Robert Quine on that record too, right? Yep, yeah. That was, how, I, how did that come together? That was Jim. I love that guy. Oh, I do too. It's just such a – that was a funny guy. Holy smokes. Really? Oh, so dry. Um, he he – uh, he was a friend of Jim Rondinelli's who'd worked with him with Matthew Sweet. Um, and Jim was, we were in New York mixing and doing the last recording for that Bedbugs album. And uh, he said, hey, we should call up Bob Quine and go have a bite to eat. I said, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so yeah. we all went out for dinner and uh, and it was really fun. We just started, hit it off and, and um and uh, I don't know which one of us had the nerve to say, you feel like playing on a track? And he said, yeah, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll go get my guitar. So he went and, you know, it was in um, Soho and he wasn't far away. So he went and grabbed a Strat and uh, showed up at the studio and we had a track up and and Jim said, okay, so don't spook the horse. Like, don't really look in there and I'll just ask him, a couple questions and we'll go. And I, we said, okay, because we had recorded drums, bass, uh, one guitar, I think. Uh, there may have been a guide vocal on this track. And um, 
Bob said, uh, he, uh, Jim goes, do you want to know what key it's in? He says out to the room and Bob goes, nope. And he, he said, you want me just to go and collect some stuff? He goes, yep. And so pressed go and he just went balls. Oh, so, so great. Full out all the way through. And he, Wicked. Then he went, we stopped and we're kind of not looking and looking. And, and then he says, do you want to do another one? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do another one. Another one, completely different and amazing. And, uh, and he said, uh, after he's done, you having fun? Oh yeah. He said, want to do another one? Yeah. <laughs> Did another one. <laughs> Three of these takes and they're all out there. And Jim just looks at us and goes, I think we got enough stuff. And so we, um, we ended up revising the, what the song was. And in the outro became this Bitor and the Snow Dog guitar battle. Because when Warren showed up, he'd finished, we'd got him to play piano, which he always hated more than playing guitar. He loved to play. He hated playing piano? Oh, he loved playing guitar way more. Okay. He didn't hate piano, but he, he always wanted to be playing guitar. And so he said, he'd played on a tune and he said, you guys can't let me go. You, you can't do this to me. I have to play guitar. So I said, well, I just got a new guitar today. It just arrived. And he goes, perfect. Yeah, I handed it to him and I said, well, you know, there's some other tracks on here. Why don't we just riff off each other? Like the end of Abbey road, you know? And, uh, so, uh, it was Steven and Robert and Warren on the, in the end, I didn't get, that was enough guitar players. <laughs> uh, like overdubbing on what you had already yeah. got out of Quine, wherever that, whenever that I think was. Steven and Warren did it together. And then okay. Roberts was already there. So cool, man. Was the process changing for you guys, like making records? Like, a, did you make that whole record in New York? No, we made the record in uh, Vancouver, and then okay. we we did a bunch of extra stuff and vocals and guitars that you do in mix when that you forgot to do or didn't get to right. New York. Going from there, I was looking through credits and stuff. The the next producer that's mentioned with you guys is um, uh, what the hell does Nigel the Cat? Who is that? <laughs> it's my cat. Okay, so is it you? Are you the producer we were, of those? You were the producers, yeah, yeah. Okay, but the, so that was just a pseudonym. It was a pseudonym, yeah. We thought it sounded okay. very British, and that people. It does sound very British. And Nigel was my cat, Nigel. Okay. But uh, the uh, the funny part was we we were always uh, getting nominated. For, not always, but we got nominated a few times for awards, but never won. I don't think uh -huh. ever, and. Uh, the one award that we won was the West Coast Music Award for Producer of the Year. Nigel won it. So my freaking cat wins. <laughs> won the award. <laughs> Did you put him up on stage? Uh, that wouldn't have worked out well for anyone. How much fun was the video for Eat My Brain? Oh, super fun. Really fun. I, I revisited that uh, this morning, but I remember it from much music days, but it looks like the most fun video ever made. It, it was great. It came out of a conversation. I, we were on tour with the Tragically Hip and riding along in, I think, their bus and coming up with ideas. Uh, and one of them was, you know how people 
think that bands have these rivalries going on. Why don't why don't you guys? We'll do a video. Would you guys chase us with guns? <laughs> and they said, "Oh yeah, that would be great." Then we found out it wasn't going to fly on on music television to have bands chasing each other with weapons. So okay, uh, so we sort of tamed it down. But Lisa Mann, the director, she's fa- she was fantastic. She helped put together that concept, and and then uh, on the day we started calling up pals that could do it and we shot it in Hamilton so hence the junk house house, and then the pursuit of happiness were close by so uh, we stole their car and you know this video (laughs) you sort of mentioned some of these musicians how tight was the scene of like that group of bands there was you guys and tragically hip and pursuit of happiness and junk house and all these bands that you know, that was like the era when I was starting. I remember, and, and all bands, I didn't think of like the Tragically Hip as being like any bigger than any any of those other bands that I just mentioned. Were you guys all pretty tight? Like, did you see those guys a lot? Like, what was the relationship with those different bands like? Yeah, whenever we could. Um, they were all people we met through both Junkhouse and, and The Hip were people who phoned us on the telephone and said, hey, we're... We're around town. Really? Would you would you come out and see us? We dig your record, and that was flattering and amazing. And then ended up hitting it off with them as people. And yeah. uh, the Pursuit were a band we toured with, and um, Bare Naked Ladies a lot. Um, yep. And we, uh, yeah, it was a fraternity. It wasn't all guys, mm-hmm. but mostly. But it was a very um, supportive and really supportive. The hip seems to have really sort of taken you guys, or I don't know if they took you under their wing, but they like kind of helped you out and put you on some big stages and stuff, right? Yes, both both them and the bare naked ladies um, were instrumental in helping us out. And I think at that time when much music, which is the Canadian MTV for any of you out there, was a formative thing or was a big influence, they were able to put us on on a stage that was big when a single came out or a video came out and the, you know, it kind of all worked symbiotically. Like, did you open for the hip a lot? Uh, Yeah. Here and there uh, we did some big shows with them. And then uh, we did their full tour across Canada, change of heart ourselves and the tragically hip uh, for the album day for night. So we got to play all the storied Canadian arenas. What was that experience like? Like, I, I know um, for Joel Plaskett, it was a challenge opening for the hip. He, I guess he did it more recently than you guys, and it was probably harder for him uh, going out and playing to an arena full of rabid, rabid, tragically hip fans. Was that a hard thing to do, or was were people pretty open to... I guess you guys were known really well, and so it wasn't like putting some unknown band out in front of the band that they came to see, but still. I think at that point, we were known enough you know, just enough that we had a toehold and we were loud and wouldn't take no for an answer. So it sort of went out and stared it, stared it down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And had so much fun. I think like in the days of the Dawn Patrol and not caring, that kind of rubs off on people. I, I, I hope. And, um, we really just were enjoying ourselves. A lot, yeah. really enjoying ourselves. It, those gigs were over so fast, you know. I, I know you've experienced it where 
Some gigs, you're there for each moment. And sometimes the gig is, is one moment. You know, it's over so fast. Yes. At what point did the, you know, the original incarnation of the odds, did that, it seems like you guys kept going for quite a while after you made the last record together. Um, no, yeah, maybe there was a, a year and a half, two years after Nest, which was in 96. So maybe till 98 or so when we kind of pulled the plug for a while. Uh, yeah. I left to do a, a solo-y thing. And um, the three of us, um, Pat Stewart and Doug Elliott and myself, kind of worked on a bunch of disparate projects, a score for the Kids in the Hall's uh, um, Brain Candy and um, started working with Colin James, as you mentioned, and Shark Skin, which was an instrumental. Love Shark Skin. Yeah, instrumental um, organ combo, a la meters. MGs. MGs, yeah sort of uh, our tribute. And um, so we had a bunch of things going and just trying stuff out and experimenting musically. And and that's what we did. As far as Stephen Drake goes, was there like animosity there or something? Like as far as the split where you guys just don't play with him anymore? Uh, I think you just, as far as I know, you kind of know when it's time, when it's not, yeah. organism isn't functioning the way it used to work. And uh Unless you can redefine it quickly, it's better to to try to keep your creative engine going. And yeah. um, that's kind of how it was left at the time and just kind of stayed that way. Not all things are easy, <laughs> yeah. especially uh, something like that. It's like a marriage for sure. You feel pain, actual pain when, when it's not working. But mm-hmm. it really wasn't sort of. And um, so... I guess I was the one who pulled the plug and said, I'm going to just do something. I want to do something. It sounds like you had other avenues opening up too that might have been more interesting or more liberating. Well, and he did. He uh, he had produced some records and, and 5440 and he'd done uh, mixed Tragically hip. hip records. And he was busy doing that too. So that's something he loves. Your relationship with Rob of the Tragically Hip, Rob Baker, has led to the Strippers Union project, which has sort of poked its head out in various. albums over the years i don't know when the was the first one like oh five or something like that yeah that's right what's that been like like w- working with him is that something that you know you guys just developed a friendship kind of on the road and when you work together as a band is it really like a collaborative thing it's absolutely a collaboration um it started when he had stuff left over from things uh, the hip as a complete democracy and all the songs are come from them playing together and uh, you bring in a little piece, you you see if it flourishes or if, or if it doesn't. So he had a lot of pieces of music that he was trying to figure out what to do with in around 2005. And um, so he thought, I think we had been friends for years and he said, uh, you know, is it a solo record? Should I sing it? What should we do? And then he said, why don't you just, collaborate with me on these things. So it was easy, you know, it was one of those great collaborations where you just start and 
then all of a sudden you got these songs and mm. it was the two of us trying to punch up each other's jokes and um, make make an interesting story out of some of these pieces of music and cut and paste and and add melodies and words. Did you tend to work on them remotely or were you always like putting aside a couple weeks to get through a whole record? Yeah, we tend to do get together for a few days and four or five songs would come out. It, it was really, okay. really quick because he'd done so much already. Um, and uh, so, we no, we got together and did it together. The only time that we haven't done it together is recently on this. We did a double album. Uh, it took a long time because, as some are aware, with the Tragically Hip, it's not been an easy time. And uh, it took a while for Rob to figure out what he wanted to do and and um, regroup. And yep. then we uh, started putting together some of the pieces that were from early in that uh, dark period, I suppose, and then new ones. Some of that was remotely, and he he on this newest album, The Undertaking. Rob plays played the entire track. He was trying to do a Todd Rundgren, you know. He did everything. He programmed and played congas and keyboards and and made these tracks. And I sang on them and um, made them into songs with him. And do you guys collaborate on on the lyrics? Yeah, yeah. I generally start it and come up with big chunks and then he he diverts the story one direction or the other direction and then um then uh Doug and Pat uh it's usually some odds members on Strippers Union records uh Simon Kendall too from Sharkskin and uh Murray's been on one of the albums uh, Murray Atkinson playing keyboards and uh they he Rob came out just before um, the COVID break, and uh, we did we tracked drums and bass on all these tracks with Doug and Pat in here. And again, sort of playing as a band, or do you just strictly do drums and bass? It was just drums and bass to these tracks that we'd already done. So oh, okay. it was uh, cool. I I never really worked backwards that way before. But there's a first yeah. for everything and. If you're going to pick two guys to make it come alive, pick two guys who've been playing together since they were 17 years old <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and hold each other's feet to the flame. And, and it sounds amazing. So with Rob, obviously like with the hip is uh, over and is this band something that may turn into like a touring thing ever, or is it just meant to be putting out records and having big breaks in between? Well, you go back to the idea of what we talked about. The travel is the part you don't like. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think Rob's into the idea of touring, but we may do some shows. Okay. It'd be fun to do yeah. some shows. Have you ever done shows? Yeah, yeah. We oh, you have? Okay. We did a bunch of shows for the first record, and then on the second one, we also did a cross-Canada, just the two of us, promo tour. Okay. I was wondering if you could just tell me one more thing. I was in, really interested in your soundtrack work, and just like from a musician that's you know come through the live music performing world, um, the soundtrack world must be a totally different thing but I I mean I know you're working with you know friends and kids in the hall and stuff like that so it may be a little different but what do you find artistically and any other differences really in the way that you approach working on music for either for tv or or film well I've learned a lot about 
about music doing it and about digging up all those things I learned in the Vancouver Youth Orchestra and all the great new yeah. theory that I have, <laughs> employing it um, about arranging and about uh, serving a muse. Like the, the, um, the show is the muse, the, the script is the muse, and it's already, the inspiration is provided for you about what you're doing with the music. And your job is to figure out a way to support that story. And so uh, sometimes it's a genre piece you need to do that's orchestral. Sometimes it's this. It always calls for something different. And I think, say, with the kids in the hall, um, and the, it's basically comedy I usually work on, it's fairly cinematic in its scope. It's not, it's not um, um, just straight up slapstick. It's always kind of like a tiny movie. Yeah. I, I learned a lot about how to do that, I suppose. And, and it, how do you do that? Like, do you, do you orchestrate for ensembles? I do, but I think because of budgets and so forth, a lot of it's in the can and it's used, yeah. using samples and things. And sometimes I either play a little bit of violin on it to, to make it sound real. Or oh, you get the old violin out. Every once in a while, because there's tools to fix anything now. And uh, <laughs> my mom, sometimes she's played and... Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah. So I, I can I, I can get players, you know, we I know people and stuff, but uh, a lot of it is just understanding musical relationships and how they relate to the emotion and what chords have an effect and what not making music in some place has, you know. With with those guys, Kids in the Hall or Brent Butt, who you've also worked with, do they have you in mind from the beginning? Or are you coming in after the, it's all complete and they're like, hey, we should get Craig to do this? Or like, are they, do you get a temp score when you see the finished edit? Yeah. Yeah, you, you do. Yeah, I get a temp score from either Brent or from uh, any anyone in the kids or the show I'm working on. <clears throat> I'm on one called... I'm on one called Tall Boys right now in for CBC, which I, I really love working on. And with Chin and Jetty, do you know you know Chin? Yeah, yeah, sure. And um, that one has a really great temp score when I get it, which is can be intimidating. The the editors are very musical, and Bruce is Bruce McCullough is the showrunner from the Kids in the Hall, and he's musical. So there's this intention to detail about the shape of the music. It's often disjointed in terms of stylistically or all kinds of things like that. So I just have to honor when they nail the shape of it and figure out my own way around it to create, create something that sounds smooth. Do you ever feel like what they're looking for is something out of your wheelhouse? Oh God, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all the time. So, so in some cases they'll throw in library music and this is just, I'm sure this is getting pretty boring for everybody, but that it's it's music that's been tossed aside by somebody, but is high have high production value. So it'll be a full orchestral recording, and you really can't beat it. So sometimes I <clears throat> I overdub around it, or I incorporate elements of it into the score. And then with Chin, how like do you guys split the writing, or are you guys collaborating on the writing for the whole thing, or how do you? Divvy that up. A lot of times with Chin, it's about the pre-records. So um, uh, okay. Shad is on there too on Tall Boys, for instance, on that show, um, and, and DJ Tilo, and they they've worked with the cast, and we create songs that are in the show or interstitials. Um, we work on stuff that 
the actors will hear on the day they're, they're shooting. Oh, cool. Oh, a lot of this stuff with Chin is that stuff. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I always wondered how that happens, where music stuff is incorporated into the, like, w- what comes first in a way. Well, music comes first in those cases if there's songs that are in the script or they break into songs. So you they have to perform to it. So before the actual scoring to picture goes, all that stuff is done. And when you score with original music from scratch, do you find, like, do you have to be on a different wavelength as far as, like, endlessly revising things? Or do you find that you you've, all that stuff comes pretty naturally to you? Say my, my relationship with Brent Budd and Corner Gas and doing the animated show, I don't even, as they call it a spotting session, I don't even discuss it with them anymore. I get their attempt cues that are already mine that are thrown in from seasons prior. Oh, and that's handy. It's handy. And if I like them, I just leave them. But um, most of the time I replace them and add things and subtract things. And then I present it to him and say, what do you think? And he says, huh, we changed the length of this. And I go, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> because we're, we've been on this wavelength before and I think we both know what it needs. And we've, I've developed an aesthetic. But early on in a new show, it can be really tough to build that trust and that aesthetic and that understanding of what serves the, the picture. And uh, in the second season, it becomes a little more easy to know what is right for, for what you're working on. Thanks so much for spending all this time with me. Uh... Love it. Yeah. Love your music. Um, you too. So are you starting to, like, are you going to be doing shows coming up or anything? Like, has that happened at all? Are, have you got any odds gigs coming up or anything? I don't know. People are talking about it, but we don't really know what it is. We're meeting today yeah. to talk to uh, our people about, are these real? Are these, ge- right. these going to happen? Because it's going to take a lot to put together, especially across the border. We don't, yeah. we don't know what anyone's going to allow us to do, so... And with Stephen Page and stuff, are you still going to be playing with him eventually when things yeah. kick back? There was so much of that canceled, and orchest- we we've been playing with symphonies and things, and those take two years to put together. And then oh my god! Then he uh, he wrote a whole musical, or I did write some of the songs with him for the musical, and it was so brilliant, and it was all rehearsed at Stratford. Oh my god! We casted, everything was ready to roll. Oh. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So so is that is that being rescheduled as well, or are they just waiting with that kind of thing? I think there's some good news is that it's going to be rescheduled because as you know, with your own gigs, those venues are now f- the, the, this, the dance cards like that list at a song poll or a karaoke. Yeah. Date. You know, there's five, there's 20 people ahead of you in the queue to get their gig rebook. All right, buddy. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, Steve. Lovely. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. That was my conversation with Craig Northy. Had a blast bringing it to you. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you, I'm not sure, late December for the final episode of season five. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Over and out. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. 
and we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.